the worship team. It's interesting to me that we sang songs today that stirred our emotions and our hearts, and that's exactly what our text points out, isn't it? How the power of music to uh, comfort and to heal, and so we got to experience that this morning. As you open your copy of scriptures to 1 Samuel chapter 16, I want to remind you of some events that took place last Monday night, in case you were unaware. During Monday night football, the Buffalo Bills were playing the Cincinnati Bengals, and one of the Bills players, Damar Hamlin, collapsed after receiving such a hard hit that it stopped his heart. It prompted medical personnel to rush out onto the field and resuscitate him. Within seconds, not only was he receiving physical medical care, but did you notice? Players began to gather in circles. Fans were praying. Even sports broadcasters stopped talking about the game to pray. Now, what does that show us? In spite of the fact that our society has embraced secularism, naturalism, and evolution, in circumstances like that circumstance last Monday night, people pray. Fundamentally, prayer is an admission that we lack understanding, we don't know what to do in this situation, and prayer also recognizes the fact that we lack the ability to change the situation. We have limitations and we are powerless. And so prayer is a desperate plea for help for someone, to someone, or to something outside of ourselves. Now, I don't know that everybody was praying to whom you might have prayed to, to the God of the, the Scriptures, the God of our salvation. But what's interesting to me is in that moment, we saw that we live in a physical world that is connected to a spiritual world. God made us uniquely in his image, so we have both spirit and flesh. We're not like animals. Sorry. Animals don't go to heaven, right? They don't have souls to be redeemed. People do. And we see in the scriptures, and we see it in life through circumstances like this, that these worlds are not separate from one another, but they are actually intertwined. We find this also in 1 Samuel. In case you've slept for a while since we were in the first couple chapters, the book opens with the desperate prayers of a woman who is married and longs for children and is barren. And her husband's other wives or other wife, has children and relentlessly torments and mocks Hannah. And so Hannah goes to the tabernacle of the Lord, and she begs God for a son. And what does God do? The sovereign Lord of all creation steps into creation, and he gives her a son. He enables her to conceive. And now as we come to the very middle of 1 Samuel, we read about the king the people wanted, and his gross disobedience. God rejected him as Israel's king. And once again, the sovereign divine creator starts to change the material world, and he chooses a new king. And it's David. So if you're here this morning and you question whether or not God exists, perhaps you believe the world is nothing more than a series of random events, my prayer is that God will use this text this morning to demonstrate to you that we live in a world that he governs. The Lord, the God of Israel, is the God who rules over this world, and he has mercifully planned to redeem sinners and change the course of their lives through his plan of redemption. And in spite of Saul's rebellion, we will see that God does not abandon his people. He replaces Saul with a better king, a king who is not only a blessing to the nation of Israel, but through his offspring, God would ultimately bring a divine salvation to all the world. And so, if you remember chapter 15, Saul disobeys yet again, and God rejects him. As king. 
The first half of chapter 16, we see that God chooses a new king. And in the second half of chapter 16, we read of Saul's decline. His mental health is fractured. He is struggling and tormented in his soul. And then in chapter 17, we read of David's rise. I mean, this is all by design to show us that there is a significant hinge taking place in the book of 1 Samuel. It starts with Samuel, this promised, uh, this gift of God to a barren mother. And he, in turn, anoints the first king of Israel, who the people clamor for. But that king turns from God, and now we see his dissension and David's ascension. If we understand narrative literature, we look for signs as you read, and that's what we're in right now in the book of 1 Samuel. It's not a bunch of propositional truths, it's story form. And what changes in a story? It's events, it's locations, it's people, or it's dialogue. And so if you read through 1 Samuel 16 this week, and I know 16 and 17, and my apologies, this is just the way it is. Sometimes I plan well and execute poorly. So we're going to look at just chapter 16 today, okay? Maybe a good sigh of relief for some. So in chapter 16, we see the narrative is going to shift from God speaking to Samuel and his subsequent trip to Bethlehem in the first 13 verses, and then there's a shift to the court of King Saul. If you read through that, you see that thing. That's helpful for us because those two sections of the chapter actually become the two points of our sermon this morning. And so the the point is, we sang the song, Behold Our God. And I want you to look at your God today, South Canyon, and understand first that nothing will stop God from accomplishing his purposes, not even our sin. All right? That's what we see in the first 13 verses. Nothing will stop God from accomplishing his purposes, not even our sin. And then what we see in verses 14 through 23 is that God can simultaneously demonstrate judgment and mercy. Okay? God can simultaneously demonstrate judgment and mercy. So let's see how this unfolds from chapter 16. I'm going to read the first 13 verses if you'd like to follow along. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures for yourself, feel free to grab one of the blue Bibles in the pews or the chairs in front of you. They're there for your taking, so take it as a gift from our church. Uh, We are on page 238 this morning. And so here's God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, 
are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now let's unpack this for a few minutes. Nothing will stop God from accomplishing his purposes. God gave Samuel a dangerous task to go and anoint the next king of Israel while the current king is still alive. And in that task, he teaches a valuable lesson to Samuel. Samuel is rebuked in the first couple of verses. God tells him, why are you mourning over Saul? for I have rejected him. It shows us something of Samuel's heart. He's not only grieved that Saul has rebelled, but that Saul has been rejected for that rebellion. And I think undoubtedly he was also gravely concerned about Israel's future. Would the nation follow in the footsteps of their king? Would they also reject God? And this ought to be instructive for us, for Samuel laments both the promise of Saul what was lost there, and then he also laments the disaster of Saul's choices. And he fears that it would fall on the nation. And I wonder, just to pause here for a moment, even at the very beginning, if we as Christians grieve when we see sin in the lives of our fellow believers. When church leaders fall and fail, do we mourn the effects that it has on the reputation of God's name? And how it affects God's people. You know, anointing a new king while the old one is alive is dangerous work. And Samuel understood that. And yet God promised to give him cover. And God does that. He tells him, go, use the sacrificial system, take a heifer with you, a calf, and you will offer that as an offering. And so Samuel, notice what he does, he obeys. Now, I think it's helpful if we think J.A. Packer says this, instead of asking ourselves or saying to ourselves when something unexpected happens, when we're put between a rock and a hard place, why is this happening? Packer suggests we might better be served by asking, how am I to glorify God now? We may never get an answer to why this is happening. God doesn't promise that. But he does promise to always use us in these circumstances, to bring glory to his name. There will always be an answer to that. And Samuel demonstrates his obedience and faith in God, and he then travels to Bethlehem. <clears throat> now, if you look at verses 6 through 13, we see that as soon as Eliab shows up, Samuel is impressed by this six foot two, six foot four. who knows how big he was, how chiseled his features were. Maybe he was the star of Bethlehem's football team. I don't know. But he impressed Samuel by his appearances. And Samuel is thinking to himself, this has got to be the guy. He's got all the marks of a leader. Look at those shoulders. And yet God says something. I want to teach you, Samuel, not only will I protect you on the mission that I've called you to go on, but I want you to learn a lesson about how I judge people. And it's not by appearances. It's by their heart. God treasures the heart, not the station, Eliab being the oldest, nor the stature, his appearance or height. What's interesting is that Saul appealed to the people when he was revealed by Samuel. Everyone's in awe. He stands shoulders and head taller than anybody else. He looked the part of a king. He was huge. He was an impressive person to behold. Eliab appealed to Samuel for the same reasons. But God rejected not only Eliab, the oldest, but all of David's brothers because of what could not be seen. According to 
Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, God has intimate knowledge of who we are in spite of the facade we present to others. I can hide my heart. I can hide my past and my future plans from those around me, but I cannot hide anything from God. I can talk in a way that deceives my fellow creatures as to what I really am, but nothing I say or do can deceive God. He sees through all my reserves and pretense. He knows me as I really am, better indeed than I know myself. Packer writes these words in his book, Knowing God. This is the creator who knows us intimately. And we live in a world where movers and shakers are highly prized, where beauty is extolled, and where beauty is attempted to be preserved, no matter how old we get, by some new product or some new technique or exercise. We live in a world where the strong and the aggressive seem to thrive. Well, the church is supposed to look differently from the world. What we prize is not vitality and beauty, We don't prize strength and intellect for the sake of intellect. God has instructed his people that what we must prize is men and women who weep over their sin. Men and women who, in marriage, pursue one another rather than someone outside of that union. Men and women and young people who pray and read God's word. And so God, in his wisdom, he gave the people what they wanted in Saul, but here God says, I will not give the people what they want in Eliab or his brothers. Far too often, the next verse is that God chooses David. This is he, arise, anoint him in verse 12. Far too often, we overemphasize the fact that David was excluded from the parade before Samuel. And there was some bias on the part of his dad. You know, he's young, uh, he's a knucklehead, he's whatever. But Eliab is the guy that I want Samuel to meet. I mean, this is my pride and joy, my oldest son, the strength of my right hand. But we don't really know why Jesse didn't invite his youngest son. Maybe it was some bias on the part of his father. Or maybe it was just simply someone has to watch the sheep. And he's the youngest, and so there you go. Lest we imply motive, we simply should accept the fact that it is what it is. God had told Samuel it would be one of Jesse's sons. Samuel runs through the seven in front of him and simply turns to Jesse and says, Do you have more? These are not whom God is looking for. And what this choice is that God makes in rejecting Eliab and the six other brothers and choosing David, let's just be very clear, we think of election, as the scriptures teach it, as salvation. But the election that God practices here is not for eternal life. It is for the unique office of king. Okay, so what David is being set apart to, what Saul was set apart to, was to rule God's people under God as a vice regent. And the choosing and this rejecting in this chapter, we can't, uh, we can't project on an eternal life. That's not what it's about. Nor do we, as we know the story of David, we know that he's not pure in heart because he sins, grievously sins. In 2 Samuel. So in that sense, he's no better than Saul, except for the fact that David does possess a heart that is teachable and responds to correction, where Saul continued to go his own way. So the Lord rejected these men <clears throat> not, and chose David, not because he was sinless, but because he had a submissive heart. And then we look at God's choice. Now, uh, this is a beautiful-looking church. I'll just be honest with you. You're good-looking, handsome people. So God is not against you because you're good-looking and handsome. All right, just to be clear, I just got to say that. Someone is probably wondering, God only loves ugly people. That's He loves all people, okay? So it just doesn't matter to God what you look like. It doesn't matter if you're disabled or you're healthy and whole, if you're young, if you're old. If your eyesight's good or poor, if your hearing is good or poor, 
It doesn't matter to God about your appearance at all. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that God is choosing someone to fill a unique role. And in that choice that God makes, he's looking at a heart, not what we all measure value by. And ironically enough, God's choice doesn't mean you got a great heart and you're kind of like a two on the beauty scale. You notice David, he's called ruddy and handsome in appearance. He's a good-looking, attractive young man. And God combines in his excellence, there's body and soul, one choice, and God encapsulates it all. So here we are, reminded that many were rejected, one was chosen, And what's ironic about this is that because David is in this passage, we have these seeds of the gospel. Because from David ultimately comes Jesus. And if you think about this, all of David's brothers were rejected. What happens to Jesus? Well, he was also rejected, right? He was despised by the world. Eliab was to be chosen because he was the oldest. Esau was older than Jacob, but Jacob was chosen. Joseph was the youngest of his brothers, and yet he was chosen. God has this way of upsetting the apple cart in order to prove to us time and time again that what he does is for his purposes, and it is far greater and wiser than what we are. Jesus is known as Joseph's son, a carpenter. Yeah, we know his family. He's from Nazareth. Nothing special about Jesus. The Jewish leaders reject him. Uh, He's a good teacher, but the guy's crazy, and he's blaspheming. He's saying that he and God are the same, that he was eternal with God, that he is divine. And so here is this mystery in Jesus that only God can disclose when he calls believers to himself through the gospel. He delights in deflating our presumptions and our assumptions to surprise us with how he works his plans. Now, the offices and the roles of Samuel as God's prophet and David and Saul as God's kings is unique. Let's be clear, especially as we get into chapter 17 next week, David and Goliath. God has not called you to be a David who kills giants. Praise the Lord for that, because I would run. I'll just be honest with you. You're like, dude, somebody else go out there. Let's see what happens. Oh, that was a poor choice. Who's next? I will watch from the back row. Okay? God is not calling us to be prophets or king. He is uniquely equipping these men by giving them his spirit. And we see an encouraging truth from this. That those whom God calls, he equips. And Christians, this is where it applies to us. We have been called to salvation and disciple-making for the glory of God, not kingly offices and prophetic offices. We've been equipped by God himself and given his enabling and empowering spirit to fulfill the Great Commission, to go and take the gospel to the peoples in all nations, to teach them and to disciple them and to see them be baptized and to raise up another generation of Christian people. God gives us the power to do this through his spirit. And this task may seem scary, especially when you know you want to open your mouth to a friend you've been praying for or a coworker, and you are just, the throat is just closing up, your tongue becomes dry, it's stuck to the roof of your mouth, your mind is racing, what do I say that will convince them that really they need Jesus? Friend, let me just encourage you to trust that God has not only called you to do this, but he's there with you in this. Relax. You, you're not going to convince anybody. The Spirit's job is to do that. You just speak. Tell him what he's done for you. Share your story. Share scripture. And God is the one who gives the increase. You look at verse 13. David was equipped to be Israel's king. It's a significant but short statement in verse 13 that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And although it's not expanded on that point at this point, we know from Saul's experience that God's vice-regent, his, his underling, his king of his people, needed God's Spirit in order to do the task that God set him apart to. 
<clears throat> and David was given the spirit, the power to do and serve the Lord and to lead God's people. He's anointed with God's spirit. And so yet again, I say this, when God appoints his servants to a task, he gives them all they will need to accomplish that task. Open your bulletin, if you don't already have it open. Look on that first page there. You see January's memory verse. It comes from Daniel 2, 20 and 21. Remember, God has the power to do anything he needs to to accomplish his plans. Nothing can prevent God from accomplishing his plans. You look in this passage and we are, read, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. And notice what it says. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And isn't that exactly what we see in this passage? God is removing a king and establishing a new king. God is involved in the affairs of this world. He knows you right where you're at today. He knows what's going to happen to you next month, next week, next year. And it makes the point that not only does God reign over a spiritual world, but over the physical world in which we inhabit. Saul's sin is not going to prevent God's purposes for Israel from being accomplished. And as we continue to the next section of this passage, we observe that God can simultaneously demonstrate judgment and grace. And further, we discover, here's how God is going to slide in his new king and equip him for this new role, taking him from the shepherd of his father's sheep to being the shepherd of God's people. So look at verses 14 through 23. I'll read from them now. Now the Spirit of the Lord... Remember in verse 13, it rushed upon David from that day forward. But in verse 14, it's a contrast. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Well, isn't that a coincidence? One who is skillful in playing a man of valor a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. God can simultaneously demonstrate judgment and grace. He's judging Saul for his sin by afflicting him with this spirit, and yet God does not abandon Saul. He sends someone, a doctor for his soul. And in doing that, God is equipping David. He is using a king who where, where does Saul find David when his message arrives? He's still with the sheep. He's not being presumptuous. He's not running around. We don't even know that anyone knew what Samuel was doing when he anointed David with the oil. He left. It may be that he just was setting David apart from some special service in the eyes of his brothers. We're not told that everyone dropped to their knees and bowed down before David and said, Hail, King David. And yet David is faithfully doing his job as a shepherd when the message finds him to come to the king's presence. 
And this young boy assumes his responsibility as a caretaker for the king. He, he gives his musical talents an outlet. God has provided a vehicle for David to be in the king's court where he is watching and learning, where his name and reputation already precedes him. I mean, isn't it ironic, or wouldn't you say providential, that when this problem arises, of which Saul has no clue, he doesn't connect it, but his servants do, Something spiritually is going on here, Saul. Would it be all right with you if we went and found someone who was gifted in music, who could kind of soothe your soul? Okay, go do it. Well, there actually happens to be this guy. And, man, not only is he a great musician, but he is a man's man. He's a warrior. But not only that, he, has, he knows how to handle himself. He's got good stage presence. He can articulate well. He knows when to be quiet. He's a man of good character. But beyond all that, it is evident that the Lord is with him. I mean, the Lord has left Saul. Saul needs men around him whom the Lord is with, doesn't he? So while God is judging him for his sin, God is also sustaining this man. And he's showing us, he's rejected him from his kingly office. And I had some of these questions before when we see. So did that mean Saul is not a believer? Did Saul not in heaven? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that, but I can separate some things. We know that God rejected him as king in his office, but it is clear that God has not rejected him as a person, or else why send David there? Well, yeah, it's serving David's purposes, but it also serves Saul. Every time this affliction came upon him, David was able to bring healing to his soul, and Saul was refreshed. And in fact, what David experienced as God's favor being upon him, now it is the king's favor who's also upon him. And isn't it that way when we truly give ourselves to the Lord that not only do we have good favor with God but with our fellow man? And so as we dig into these chapters, looking at verses 14 and through 18, God's demonstrating his judgment on Saul by afflicting him with a tormenting spirit. And as I said, it's, it's clear that Saul didn't put two and two together, but thanks be to God that his servants did. And I wonder if perhaps, if Psalm 5111, David's psalm of confession after his gross sin with Bathsheba, he slept with another man's wife, and then he murdered that man when he tried to get him to go into bed with his wife in order to raise up this pregnant pregnancy and disguise it. And then when this man had more character, Uriah, than David. David sent him into the hardest part of a battle, and he died. God saw all that. And so David writes in Psalm 51:11, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I wonder if he wrote that because he was afraid his sin would also lead to God's rejection of him as it did for Saul. The narrator tells us that the king's servants um, put forward a plan in verses 15 through 17 to which the king agreed Saul is passive. He lacks spiritual discernment. It's not until actually chapter 18 and verse 12 that it finally dawns on Saul that God's spirit has indeed left him, and then it has gone to David, and then we see Saul ramping up his jealousy for this young man. But here at this point, Saul is clueless. He's an unworthy candidate to fill the role of king. And what is this spirit that God sent? I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know if it was a demon that embodied both moral and spiritual wickedness, or maybe it was just the, a harmful spirit that boded ill for Saul. We see that this is not unusual for God to do this. He did this with one of uh, Gideon's son, Abimelech. We see that God does this throughout the scriptures. He will even do it to David later on in the, toward the end of his kingdom where he will incite David to sin by uh, numbering the people. How large is my army? How large is our nation? Kind of David's filled with pride here. What's clear <clears throat> is that whatever this is, somehow God in his power is able to do this without giving up any of his holiness, without giving up any of his 
righteousness without tainting his purity. And it's clear also that this had harmful effects for the mental and psychological well-being of Saul. It plagues him the rest of his life. And so I want us to just take a moment here because this is real truth to me. This has been my experience. Spiritual affliction is real. Okay? We who have God's spirit will experience God's protection and strength, but we may at times be afflicted by depression. We may at times, and depression may be a physical condition, it may be a spiritual condition. It takes wisdom to determine the cause, because both possibilities are real. Far too long we've ignored what the Puritans called melancholy. And thankfully, our society and the church is starting to better understand mental health issues, to determine if one is suffering because of physical conditions and needs good doctrine, or whether someone is suffering because of a condition of the soul and needs spiritual help. It takes wisdom. Personally, for myself, I spent many a year struggling with depression, not knowing what it was, just willing myself to do better, to be kinder, to be more patient, to be more righteous, to be more holy, only to have this house of cards come crashing down and discovering that it wasn't a spiritual problem. It was a physical one. One little pill a day restores a chemical imbalance. It hasn't changed my personality. It has mellowed me a little bit, but I don't have these deep, deep lows anymore. I mean, treading water for me was like 50 feet below the surface. Had no idea it was that bad. So there is a reality here that we need to wrestle with. Suicidal thoughts, self-harm is not something you need to endure or accept as normal. Seek help. Always being down or being withdrawn or simply not feeling anything at all is not normal. Most of us are not equipped to address the medical problems. But all of us who know Christ are equipped and ought to be growing in our knowledge of God's word so that we can instruct and help each other spiritually. Now, if God can send his spirit upon his man to do his work, to fulfill a divine task, should we be surprised that God would send a harmful spirit on a man to afflict him for his disobedience? That's where it ends for me. God is sovereign. I'm not. I understand what he's saying here, and I can't press in any further. But God, in his mercy, has providentially placed someone in Saul's court, who not only identified the problem, but he had the solution. This man knew about David's musical gifts, his military prowess, his good character, and that the Lord was with him. And Saul repeatedly presents himself as a king who is unwilling to depend on the Lord, yet God, in his grace, meets Saul where he is. Maybe that's an encouraging word for you today. So the 14 through 18, they show us how God judged Saul. Now let's see how God demonstrated simultaneously his grace in verses 19 through 28, 23. So Samuel is told, uh, or Saul is told, that uh, there's this opportunity in Bethlehem. He encourages the exploration of it, and they bring David to him. He's able to minister to Saul, as we see in verses 21 and 22, And in verse 23, and although Saul is rejected by God as king, Saul, again, I need to say this, is not abandoned by God. God is meeting him where he is. He's providing Saul with wise counselors. He's given him an instrument of mercy in David. Left unchecked, this tormenting spirit would have destroyed Saul. But God intervened and provided a respite to this troubled man through David's ministry. Now the blessing of good music played by one who is not only skilled but filled with God's spirit is an incredible sign of God's grace. And God has shown his grace to Samuel in protecting him 
on a dangerous task and teaching him that God's ways are better than man's. Saul has also, or Saul has also received grace from God in giving this healing ministry of David. And so if you're, again, remember what I said at the beginning? If you think the natural world and the spiritual world, well, there is no spiritual world. God doesn't exist. Let me just say that if you think that God is a divine being who is indifferent to human suffering, or at worst, is powerless to do anything about it, this text actually shows us that God is acutely aware of our circumstances, whether they are self-inflicted or otherwise. And that God is far more than capable to address those problems and to accomplish the physical changes that need to take place in light of the spiritual changes that need to take place. Every single one of us in this room, the reality is the same. Without God's grace, without his intervention in our lives, we would all be destroyed by our sin. I met a guy this last weekend. We were talking um, about Jesus and me being a pastor here at South Canyon and come to find out that he was a believer and has shared some stories of his life and it was a really hard life that he's been through. Serious trauma, both physical and spiritual. And he made the statement, if it weren't for the grace of God, I wouldn't be here today. And it was like, bing, in my mind. I knew where I was going as a young man. I, I lost friends as a young man who are not here anymore. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the grace of God. Now, how does God do this? How does he not only afflict us because of our sin, but then show grace to us? Well, he does this through David's offspring. An even greater king is going to come from David. And it is, it is better than any music that you could ever hear from Chris Tomlin or your favorite artist or even David himself. Jesus addressed our greatest need. He filled the gaps between our character and God's character. His holiness, his perfections, his righteousness accomplished everything that our sinfulness, our weakness, and our corruption never could. He was afflicted by an evil spirit, just like Saul. If you read in Mark's gospel, Jesus, after being baptized, the spirit of God comes upon him and then immediately leads him into the wilderness, a place of barrenness, no country no creature comforts whatsoever, and it is there that he is being led for the singular purpose of being tried and tested by Satan. Forty days of going without food, and he's asked simply, hey, you ever notice, Jesus, where you're standing? There's a lot of rocks around you. Wouldn't it be cool if you just turned one into a loaf of bread and just satisfied your need? Uh, but you don't understand. God sent me here so that I might depend on him. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Oh, Jesus, maybe we can just shortcut this trip to your rule over the world under my authority. And you don't have to go to the cross. Why don't you just bow down and worship me? And then I'll give you all the kingdoms and you can serve as my vice regent over this world. No, 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 that's not how it works. You should not tempt the Lord your God. And you should worship the Lord your God. Nothing else. Let's do a daredevil stunt. Let's just throw yourself off a temple, Jesus, and maybe the angels will come and catch you. And I'm here in the wilderness, Satan. I'm not supposed to be in the temple. I'm supposed to be here right where God has placed me. Jesus was so committed to God's purposes, he wouldn't let any creature comfort, any earthly desire, any fleshly desire circumvent what God had ordered for his life. He obeyed the Father, entrusting his very life to his care. So David's ministry would bring temporary relief to Saul. The text makes it clear that these need resurfaced over and over again. But Jesus, David's greater offspring, provides permanent relief, an enduring salvation, an eternal rest. That's why he's described as the balm of Gilead, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, because he enhances and sweetens our life. He is the Passover lamb slain for us. Jesus is greater than any other. 
And God set David apart in order to introduce this world to his own son. And that demonstrates to me that God is absolutely determined to do good to sinners if they will just cast themselves upon his mercy. Once again, I want to quote Packer. There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. Friend, you can have that peace to be reconciled to God through Jesus by trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins. You can bow the knee to the king of kings and the ruler of rulers, the Lord of lords. You will bow the knee to him one day, but that may be too late. Today is the day of salvation. Today, yield your spirit, your life to him, and understand that he is not only ruling a spiritual world, but he is intimately involved with yours. He's orchestrated your life, all the struggles, all the sin, all the trials, to bring you to a point where you will make a choice. Will I yield to him or will I resist him? Make no mistake, God's ways are higher than ours. And he's doing more than just showing grace to Samuel and Saul. He's also showing grace to David. God orchestrated this need in Saul's life, and then he provides the solution in order to bring David, his anointed, to the right place at the right time. Saul is completely unaware of David's future. Meanwhile, David is finding favor in both God's sight and Saul's, and he's getting an education as Saul's armor-bearer and his doctor. This young man from Bethlehem has come to serve a rejected and afflicted ruler Saul sees him simply as a musician, unaware that he is so much more. And that leads us to another observation that we need to make. When the Spirit came upon Saul, we saw shortly after that he found himself going to war against Israel's enemies. For David, the Spirit comes upon him, and so far in chapter 16, everything's going great. I mean, he's been invited to the court of the king. He's now his armor bearer, and he's there with a, with a full rations, and he's there as the, the chief musician in the court. He's got it made. But it will be very quickly, from chapter 18 on through the end of 1 Samuel, that the spirit coming upon David also will lead to trouble for David. He'll be hunted, betrayed. His life will nearly be taken multiple times. He will live in caves until forced into exile from his land and his family. This is what happens when the Spirit comes to dwell in you. God's Spirit comes to dwell in you. If someone tells you that the Christian life is an easy life, hey, join up, sign up, man. It's gravy all day long. It's just a roller coaster of fun, and it's just thrills and cakewalk. That is someone you need to ignore and walk away from. Following Christ does cost something. Following Christ is hard. The Christian life isn't simple. If you are going to live in a life that is dedicated to Christ and his teachings, it's not only impossible without God's Spirit, but it will be accompanied by many a trial. You will be called to resist the sin in your life. You will encounter opposition for the faith. This was the experience of Jesus, the apostles, the early church, and then through the ages. Jesus says that Christians are to be the salt of the earth in Matthew 5.13. In other words, we are the preserving nature of this world. We keep it from rotting and decaying. This doesn't mean that Christians know everything about everything or that we need to control everything in this world either. But it does mean that God has strategically placed each and every one of us to preserve what is right and good and to present, prevent decay. And I just wonder, as we kind of wind things down this morning, what hard thing has God called you to? Maybe it's to confess your sin. Maybe it's to resist a particularly challenging temptation for pride, gossip, lying. Maybe you're lazy with your finances and you just have no discipline and you're in debt. Maybe you don't want to work hard or study hard as a student. 
For parents that are here, is, is God prompting you to be more spiritually active in your home, reading the Bible and praying with your children? Is God calling you to reflect Christ in your teaching and correction of your children, to parent with God's purposes in mind? As a married person, perhaps God is calling you to selflessly love your spouse, regardless of their infirmities or their prickly character. Maybe God is calling you as a single person to practice purity, to spend your life for the kingdom of God and not for your own goals and plans. Maybe God is actually calling a family or a person in this church to take a short-term mission trip and to go explore whether or not God might be calling them overseas into missions. Or maybe it's as simple as God is calling you to the hard thing of talking to someone who you know you should have shared the gospel with, but keep shrinking back. Maybe it's just to simply show hospitality. You may not have a lot of stuff, and so you're not really excited about inviting people into your home because you're embarrassed by what you don't have. Maybe God is calling you to share your life with the believers around you that you've covenanted with here at South Canyon, warts and all, to just be known and to care for one another. Maybe God's calling you to serve in the church or join the church. Visit shut-ins and the sick, the widows and the orphans. Meet with people of the same gender as you for a Bible study, to volunteer for children's ministry or youth. Maybe God might be leading you to attend Life, Inc. for eight weeks on a Wednesday night, February 8th. Regardless of how scary or difficult what God has called you to do, know this, that whom God calls, he equips. He's given you the power to do what he's called you to do. He's going with you. He's given you his spirit. So walk in faith and obedience, knowing that God himself has prepared you for this. And although David's time had not come in chapter 16, he's being groomed. He's patient. Paul writes this in Philippians 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In the very next chapter, he says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's called you to something great. Don't pull back from that. Christian, behold your God and put your confidence in him. When God saved you, he equipped you, he empowered you to trust and obey him, even in the doing of hard things in hard places. He controls all things. Nothing will prevent his plans from being accomplished. And even while he is showing judgment, he is also extending grace. This is our God. Isn't he good? Let's stand and sing, Be Thou My Vision. And let's... Sing to this Lord and ask him to so occupy our hearts that all we can do is give ourselves to him.